Just another little reminder here of the Christmas Eve service. Some of you might remember, if you've been here for a long time, that uh, I don't even know if we were married, but my wife, or fiancé, or Jen, whatever she was then, <laughs> was like, Will, does this church have a uh, Christmas Eve service? And I'm like, I don't, I don't think we do. And it's like, well, maybe we should have one. So we decided to have one, and the only people who showed up were her family. Like they had one row, it was uh, the Wagner family. But since then, it's grown into, you know, a pretty big event. And um, I, I, I do hope that, uh, even as we'll see in the sermon today, that we are all participating in seeking to get the message of the gospel out. That should be part of what we're doing. And I know sometimes there's not a natural segue in our just normal conversations with people to move into that type of conversation. But this is a time of the year when it's pretty natural. And in order to make it even easier for you, um, we've made up these cute little invitations to the Christmas Eve service. And so, you know, there are people who don't go to our church, but they will come to that because people are looking for something even to form a tradition where you can come and sing some carols. And I promise that the message will not be like 55 minutes long. We try to get in and out in one hour and give kind of a basic gospel message where we can come and just hear once again those words that should be so soothing and redeeming to our souls. So these are out in the lobby, and I don't know how many we have. Take all you want, but use all you take. All right. All right, we are in Revelation chapter 20, so buckle up. We are in verses 4 through 6, which may be the most controversial three verses in the entire Bible, and uh, so this morning you're going to hear, at least uh, the way I understand uh, the way these verses should be understood and applied to our lives. I've entitled the message this morning, Reigning with Christ, Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 through 6, hear now the word of God. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Truly, Father, the words before us have had multiple interpretations by good and godly men and women throughout the ages. We do pray, Father, that there would be clarity in our minds and hearts as to the message that you are giving to us through these words, that they may tell us of you. They may tell us of your glory, of your power, of your might, of your redeeming love. And we do pray that as we look at them, we would also understand what your call is in our lives to participate in what you are doing. And may we embrace that call, that great commission, with willing hearts. Grant us the wisdom necessary for these things and the love within our hearts to be who you would have us be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I have mentioned previously, chapter 20, I believe, of Revelation is, above all, a missionary chapter. Christ has given us the Great Commission, we read in the end of the Gospel of Matthew, so clearly, to to disciple the nations. There's a call to disciple the nations. Now, To those who initially heard Jesus say that, make disciples of all nations, you know, those 12 apostles, it must have appeared to be a daunting task, a small group of kind of insignificant people. How how could it possibly be that this first century Middle Eastern man named Jesus would be the savior and redeemer of the world? How could that be? I mean, we have to keep in mind, the apostles, they're just people. As far-fetched 
as an idea that this seems to a lot of people today, that Jesus would be the Savior and Redeemer of the world. To those who first heard it, it had to border on some level of fantasy. How could this possibly happen? The whole world lay under the sway of the wicked one, and yet Jesus is saying, go, disciple the nations. Change the world. Turn it upside down on my behalf. How could that possibly happen? Well, I think chapter 28 of Matthew can happen because what we learn in chapter 20 of Revelation, it can be accomplished because the load-bearing wall of deception has been compromised. That which was necessary, or he who was necessary for the nations to continue to believe the lie has now been bound, as we learned in the first three verses. But the fact that the enemy of our souls has been bound, that he would deceive the nations no further, should not be understand or understood by us as a license for inactivity. As if God is doing something and I'm the mere audience in what he's doing. The scriptures, two big things we get out of the scriptures, and if you're listening, you kind of hear me pray it all the time, and that is, what do we learn of God and what is his call in our lives? These are two things that we see over and over throughout the reading of the Bible. Now, if you recall, chapter 19 of the Revelation portrays Christ riding on a white horse. You've got this, and again, I, I would argue that that's him going through history, this, this great commission. He's on a white horse, and he's wearing a garment dipped in blood. But as we read chapter 19, we recognize that Jesus is not the only one on a white horse. To be sure, his garment is the only one dipped in blood. But there's a, there's a whole army of people, of beings, a part of the creation, that are on white horses. We are not, friends... And if I can, uh, you know, I have to insert either a movie or some sporting analogy, right? We are not in this game of redemption as those who sit on the bench. You know, you have teams. I have a team I coach, my son's team. We have 11 guys on the team, but only six can play at one time. Five of them are on the bench. That's right math, isn't it? But in this game of redemption, if you're, if you're on the team, you are in the game. We all have a role to play. And I think that's something we learn in this chapter. And I saw thrones, we read, verse 4. And they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So we start off here in verse 4 with a reference to thrones. And as I've mentioned before, thrones is a word used in the Revelation over, over and over. I mean, it's, it's in Revelation ten times more than the rest of the New Testament put together. What are these thrones? Who's on these thrones? And maybe more importantly, what are they doing on those thrones? Well, I don't think it's very difficult for us to draw the conclusion of what a throne actually represents. I don't think we should view these thrones as a literal piece of furniture somewhere that people are sitting on. I think they represent something. They carry the notion of glory and authority and judgment. I mean, we all know what a throne is. The person who's sitting on that throne has that position of authority and power and judgment. And I have to say, where I'm going to go with this, what I think this is teaching should cause us to pause. I mean, when I read it, I think it makes us stop for a second. Let us recall that this, 
this idea of this throne is what Jesus had promised he would give to those who overcome and keep his works to the end. So let's read this, having read other portions, not only of the Bible, but other portions of the Revelation. This idea of the throne. Where do we go with the throne as we read Revelation? In Revelation 2, 25 through 27, it's a letter written to a first century church, the church at Thyatira, and we read this. But hold fast what you have till I come. And he overcomes and keeps my works until the end. To him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my Father. Now you read that, and not to go all the way back into that, but that's a reference to Psalm 2, and Jesus, where Jesus is upon the throne. But here he's saying, you're going to be with me upon that throne. He's assigning to that church that which is assigned to him. More clearly and more specifically, in terms of the use of the word throne, we see again to the first century church at Laodicea these words in Revelation 3.21. Because you, if you remember correctly, these seven letters to seven churches have a recurring theme, right? There's, he, Jesus is introduced in terms of the power and authority that we see of him in the first chapter. And then there's usually some type of commendation, some type of rebuke, and some type of promise for overcoming, and so forth. It, it's... Not consistently with all seven, but for the most part, that's what you see. But here's a promise that we see in Revelation 3.21. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me, where? On my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So that's what the, this idea of the throne carries. But more specifically, so who is sitting on these thrones? Now, this language of sitting on the throne is nothing new. But who are the people? Is it just the 24 elders? Who, who's on the throne? Now, keep this in mind. And the reason I highlighted the idea that these promises are made to the first century church. When you read your Bible, whatever you think the Revelation is teaching, it had to have some application to the very people who received the letter in the first place. You can't read the Revelation as if it only had application to the last generation of history. They read it, and they were promised that if they overcame, they would sit on the throne. Did Jesus not keep his promise? Is that not written primarily to them, and then by further application to others? You see, when you read this fourth verse of Revelation 20, <clears throat> there is a, uh, a temptation to read it as if this idea of being on that throne is reserved for higher-tiered Christians or just martyrs. But we have to understand this. It is perfectly acceptable in terms of a translation to read this as applying to those, all those, who have persevered in the faith. Those beheaded, to be sure, but also to those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads and hands. And that pronoun, who, actually could be translated, and it is translated other places, whoever. Whoever has not taken the mark of the beast. Who has never not, whoever has not put upon their foreheads and their hands his mark. Now, I don't want to go all the way back to that, but I know there's, and maybe it'll be one of the hot topic Sundays, this idea of the mark of the beast. But let me tell you, I don't think it's a tattoo. I don't think it's a subcutaneous computer chip. I don't think it's the hand stamp at Disneyland, and you could laugh at that, but there are people I know who would not go back into Disneyland because they thought. And in the direction Disney has taken, maybe it's got a little more legitimacy. <laughs> but this idea of the mark of the beast is a parody of the mark of God. You see the mark of God way more in the Bible than you see the mark of the beast. And that idea comes all the way out from, from Deuteronomy chapter 6, where you have the law of God upon your forehead and upon your hand. 
We see it in Ezekiel where the mark of the God's people is put upon those who are going to escape the judgment. We see it also in the Revelation. Just so you understand, the mark of the beast on your forehead and on your hand refers to the way you think and the way you behave. It is your faith and your works. It should be simple to grasp that. It's not, it's not like you're going to get tricked at the bank and accidentally receive the mark of the beast. It's, it is who you believe in and who is governing your life. It's Savior and Lord. That's what the mark of the beast is. So I would argue that those on these thrones here are all who have, if you will, the mark of God upon them, which also signifies who owns you. God has put his mark upon his people. And I would say those on these thrones are the ones who belong to Christ, all of them. And that is you, and that is me, and those who have died to go to be with him. And I think that this is the consistent teaching through the Bible. The one thing I don't know if you've noticed is I've come to realize for me in my interpretation of the Revelation is that I am relying heavily upon what the Bible taught for 65 books. And that I'm not going to get to the last book and reinterpret everything based upon the most difficult book in the Bible to read. And so this language of being on the throne is not something new. Where are the believers right now? I mean, obviously we're sitting here. But in a spiritual sense, where are we? Ephesians 2, 4 through 6, I think puts it so nicely. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved. So what's he talking about here? He's talking about regeneration. He's talking about getting saved. He's talking about believing in Jesus and being a new creature in Christ. Then he goes on and says this, and I'm going to refer to this again in a minute when we talk about the resurrection. And he says, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. So where are you seated right now? See, according to this, we are currently seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ. So the idea that you and I are on these thrones is not something novel. It's, just, it's something we already read in a clearer teaching. It's lofty to be sure. Kind of like part of, you know, part of me is going, well, you might be saying, well, I'm seated, I'm seated right here. Well, in one sense, you are seated right here. But in another, more significant sense, you're seated someplace else. And I think what we're learning in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, is saying the exact same thing, but if you will, more vividly, with greater impact. You're, it's in living color that we're looking at this grand event taking place. Finally, what are they doing on these thrones? That might be the bigger question. You know, if I'm saying, well, you're seated on a throne... You're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. And we might kind of view that as inactivity, right? I'm just sitting there. But that is not what the Bible teaches in terms of being on that throne. What we're learning here, and again, this makes me a little nervous, because he says that we are reigning with Christ. Now, I'm going to tell you in all candor, that language makes me a little uncomfortable, this idea. And when I hear people who I agree with say things that I agree with, but they say it in a certain tone, I'm like, hey, we're reigning. I'm in charge. You see, you see what happens here is that type of language, and this is just a warning, that type of language can appeal to some very dark instincts in humanity, right? People who just want the power. They want to be in charge. They want to reign. I think one example, historically, would be the Holy Roman Empire. I think the way they understood reigning with Christ during the Holy Roman Empire, where you had this really unholy 
you know, amalgamation of the church and the state, and if you wanted to be in a position of power, you had to go through the church. So if you were an unbelieving person, if you were a tyrant or a despot, and you were like, well, I want to find some power, you had to go through the church, and so the church became very corrupt. So we see misapplications of this throughout the course of history. One might recall the conversation between Thomas Aquinas and Pope Innocent II, where the Pope was apparently counting all the money. And uh, he looked at Aquinas and said, well, the church can no longer say, he was appealing to Peter in chapter 3, the church can no longer say, silver and gold, I have none. To which Aquinas said, true, Holy Father, but neither can the church say, arise and walk. Our natural discomfort, I think, with the idea of reigning with Christ, I think has to do with a very carnal or worldly definition of what it means to reign. There is a dark and oft-used temptation to use positions of leadership, whether it's a husband or a father or a political figure or an elder, whatever, there is a dark temptation to use positions of leadership in a very self-serving manner. Generally speaking, you know, and I'll do a wedding and I'll sit down with people beforehand and I'll explain the picture of the, of the marriage, right? It's Christ and his church it's from Ephesians chapter 5. And, you know, the, 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 the bride is called to put herself under the care. Literally, hupotasso is the Greek phrase. It's a military term to go, she is kind of going, you are my husband and I am put under your care. Uh, you're the leader. You're the head of the household. Now, it, you know, I don't think it should be shocking to anybody to, to realize that's not a well-received message in today's egalitarian culture, right? But I will say this. When you start looking at that passage and realize what the husband is actually called to do in terms of his headship, I've, I've done hundreds and hundreds of weddings. I'll, I'll marry unbelievers to each other, and I'll marry believers to each other. I just won't marry an unbeliever and a, and a believer. But I still think, even if you're a two unbelievers, that your, your wedding, your marriage, should look like Christ in the church. That's what marriage should look like. And when I finally explain what the roles are to two even unbelieving people, when I say, you know, you're, you as the wife are called to submit to the husband, and you can see, you know, the discomfort and then you look at the husband and go, now here's what you're called to do. And if you've been to any weddings I've done, you know I spend a lot more time talking to the husband than to the bride. Because the husband is called to do this. Love his wife. How? As Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her. That Greek word, didomine, means he literally had himself betrayed on behalf of his bride. That you aren't just to die for your bride, you're to live for your bride. Every day you get up, you're to serve your bride the way Christ came to serve the church. Jesus is the head of the church, but he said, what? I did not come to be served, but to serve. So we have such a convoluted idea of what it means to be the head, to reign, to be the authority figure. And I will say this, that once I've actually been explained to these couples what the role of the husband is in terms of getting up every day and recognizing that the highest call in your life is to love this woman and to serve this woman the way Christ loved and served the church, one time, there was only one time when the, the bride said, I don't really want that. Every single time, they're kind of going, well, wait a minute. I, that's not the way I heard it. I heard that you're submitting to this guy who comes home, kicks off his shoes, gets the, says, honey, get me a beer and the clicker and make me some dinner. You know, this idea. That's just a carnal, worldly understanding of what it means to be a leader. And so our discomfort with reigning with Christ comes from a carnal, worldly understanding of what it means to reign. What it means to reign with Christ means to serve with Christ. A little bit more on that. Some have suggested, I think, that this reigning is analogous to worship. So when we're, we're together, we're worshiping, I think there's some merit to that. But others have suggested, I think, with even greater merit, that this reign appeals back to the dominion mandate at creation. 
which is why I picked the call to worship that we had today. At creation, mankind was commissioned by God to have dominion over the fish and the birds and the cattle and all things. That's, that is a, a commission given at the very beginning of recorded history. And we are called to be faithful stewards of God's creation. I mean, the ultimate environmentalists, not in the worldly, cultic, idolatrous way that environmentalism is handled where human beings are a blight to the world and need to be exterminated so that algae can live or something. But it's this idea that we are called to care for the world in which God has placed us. And let me just reread that portion of Psalm 8, verses 4 through 9. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You see, this idea of reigning applies to that, this idea of having dominion. God has put you in charge of the creation. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. And what's interesting, and also a little disquieting about this, is this is a passage that applies to Jesus, and yet it applies to us. Because we, are, we have been called one with Christ. That we are sitting with him on his throne. I mean, this language of, of unity is what we see Jesus praying for in the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. Father, make them one with me as you and I are one. This idea of union with Christ, we are called to be that. But of course, this reigning servanthood goes way beyond the mere physical environment. We're not just called to recycle. Paul addresses the battle that this kingdom of priests, which is what we're called, are to engage in. Listen to the extent of this reigning, of this serving. We read it in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. You see what's going on here? I mean, do you understand what's happened? At the fall, all of creation went off kilter. And we, you and I, are called to participate in the restoration of that which went south at the fall. We're called to be part of that. And that restoration pertains, according to Paul here, to every thought. They call it the noetic effects of the fall. The way human beings think has been affected by the fall. And Paul is saying, no, we need to help people think rightly. We need to utilize where God has put us in terms of this throne, in terms of reigning, to lovingly bring forth wisdom into a lost and dying world that doesn't understand wisdom. Again, this shouldn't be thought of as something new. I'm not presenting some new doctrine here. All of this, everything I'm saying right now, is contained in the Great Commission. What, what are we to do in the Great Commission? All authority has been given, right? Christ says, I have all authority in heaven and earth. And I would argue with that comes the binding of Satan. And then, then you have the commission. And go and do what? Make disciples. Baptize them. And then what? Wish them luck. <laughs> Teaching them to do what? To obey all that I have commanded. Every thought. Now, let me say, let me just back up a little bit here. 
Some of you, <clears throat> you know, if you're sharing what I'm teaching with your friends and they're like, what is he talking about? I didn't see a movie about that. And <laughs> whether or not you agree or disagree that this is happening in Revelation 20, verse 4, you, you may disagree and your friends may disagree that that's what this passage is talking about. But what I just said, the Bible clearly teaches. I just happen to think, the revelation makes a lot more sense if we allow what we've already been taught in the Bible to kind of have a ruling interest in how we read this. It shouldn't be so novel that we're on a throne. It shouldn't be so novel that we're reigning with Christ. These are things that the Bible's already taught. But we need to utilize that post in our lives in a loving, thoughtful, humble way and not as a mere power grab, which, as, as I said, has happened historically. Verses 5 and 6, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. They shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Well, I think the rest of the dead here are those who died in unbelief. And they are awaiting the final judgment at the end of the millennium, at the end of the chapter, if you will, at the end of history. John then beckons back to another very confusing term, the first resurrection. And let me tell you, there's a lot of speculation as to what that is. What is the first resurrection? I think what we see going on with this, as I do my homework and try to read everybody I can, including people I disagree with, this would be a premier example of reading perhaps the most difficult chapter in the Bible and then revamping the clear teaching of the previous 65 books. I've, I've seen that more in these three verses than any place else in, in the entire Revelation. Today's most popular view, the view that you'll hear you know, most of the time, not, by the way, not historically the most popular view, just in the last 100 or 150 years the most popular view, has to understand multiple Physical resurrections. That's, the, that's where they go. They're like, there's, Dr. Bunsen said that he had heard, and I couldn't find who this was, that there were certain people who believed in up to seven resurrections. Now, I, like I said, I couldn't find that, but it was quite easy to find those who would believe in two and usually three resurrections. So you got the first resurrection, and a lot of people are going, well, there's three resurrections. Let me just give you, we could talk about it today. I don't have, sorry, I don't have the graphs done yet. Where's Gracie? Gracie, you might have to help me with the graphs somehow this week of the millennium. All right, but for example, the current popular view it's called premillennialism, premillennial dispensationalism, and they basically believe in three resurrections. You have, you have um, a partial second coming where Jesus comes partially down, and there's a thing that they call the rapture, where believers are raptured. That's a resurrection. That's where, you know, in case of rapture, the bus driver is going to be gone and the bus runs into the whatever. I, I do believe in a rapture, although I don't call it the rapture, I call it the resurrection, and I don't think it's going to be a secret. But you have that, you have that resurrection, and then, if you know the, the way it unfolds, there's, there'll be a seven-year tribulation period, and then there's the actual second coming, where he, Jesus comes all the way, and that's another resurrection, the resurrection of the tribulation saints, those who had to, were martyred during the tribulation and so forth. Then you have a thousand-year period. Then you have a third resurrection of the unbelievers. Right? So th this model that everybody is believing right now has, generally speaking, a minimum of three resurrections. Now, does the Bible teach that? Talk about going back and re re rewriting your entire Bible. Let me tell you, the rest of Scripture does not allow for multiple resurrections. In the final resurrection, in Matthew 25, we see the sheep and the goats. They're standing together on Judgment Day. It's not the sheep and then the thousand years later the goats. 
So the picture we're given, sheep and goats standing together. Jesus, speaking of the resurrection, speaks of it as happening in a single hour, one moment. We read in John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, do not marvel at this, for the hour, not multiple hours, the hour is coming in which all who are in graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to a resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. It's a general resurrection. It's not separated by a thousand years. I, I find it mystifying that we have an entire generation of Christians who know these verses and yet believe a system that doesn't comport with what we see not just one or two times, but what we see over and over. We see the same thing taught in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. And Jesus, in his parables of the wheat and the tares, the wheat and the tares grow together, right? And they're harvested together. As a matter of fact, in that harvest, the tares are harvested first, then the wheat, right? So you don't have the judgment of the wicked after the judgment of the redeemed. So, so even if you were to kind of go, well, it seems like one goes and the other goes, it has, it has the the tares first, not the tares last. And let me just add to this, that the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, which, by the way, are tests of orthodoxy. If your church does not believe in the Apostles' Creed, if your church does not believe in the Nicene Creed, they're not an orthodox church. And yet both of them, in the Credo, say, and I believe in the resurrection. Not multiple resurrections. I believe in... And that's not the resurrection of Christ because the resurrection of Christ is already stated earlier in the creed at the end, and I believe in the resurrection, and yet we have a system that is dominating our culture that has multiple resurrections. Well, I would say that if your exegesis of Revelation 20 forces you down that road, it should be your last resort. It should be your last resort in terms of the way you understand a reading of passage to have it conflict with everything you've read prior to that. Is it possible? Well, I guess it is possible. But it seems to me very unlikely. So what is the first resurrection? Now, some say it's the resurrection of Christ, that he was resurrected. He is the first fruit of the resurrection and so forth, and we follow, and I don't have a big problem with that. I think the upside of that is it doesn't really force you to kind of revamp all of your theology. But another, and I think more likely view, is that the first resurrection is speaking of a spiritual resurrection. <clears throat> and people will go, well, I don't know, you know, because you've got, even though the, the, you have the, the first resurrection, you don't have a, the mentioning in Revelation 20 of the second resurrection, but clearly there's a, another resurrection. And people will go, People will, and I respect the fact that they're doing their homework, and they will say, if you have two resurrections in one passage, they should not have different definitions. I respect that, except for this. There are two deaths, right? There's the first death and the second death in this chapter, and clearly those are two different kinds of deaths. The first death and the second death aren't the same. The first death is a death we're all probably going to experience. It's a physical death. What's the second death? It's a spiritual death. So in that same passage, you have the word death being used in two different ways, and I think it's perfectly acceptable if you want to maintain some consistency throughout the Bible to have resurrection used in two separate ways as well. John, by the way, the same author in his gospel kind of combines these two things very close to each other. In John 5.24, he writes of the passing from death into life spiritually, where he writes this, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So we see this idea of you were dead, now you're alive. And then it's almost immediately followed by what we've already read, the physical resurrection, where Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to a resurrection of life and those who have done evil to a resurrection of condemnation. So we see John has already done this. He's already taken 
this idea of regeneration and coupled it with resurrection. He did that in his gospel. And now he's writing the Revelation. And I'm going to argue he's doing the similar thing. Add to this how our generation, our regeneration, that is the idea of being born again, is often spoken of in language that mirrors resurrection terms. Let me give you a couple of examples of that. Ephesians 2, 5, and 6, and I already read this, but I'll read it again. Even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and did what? And raised us up. Now, that's not the Greek word anastasis, where we, you know, the word resurrection, but this idea of being raised up, very much has a resurrection feel, right? To be raised up on the last day is the resurrection. This is past tense. He has raised us up together and made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Colossians 2.12, we were buried with him in baptism, in which you also were what? Raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And finally, Romans 6.4 we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so the imitation of his resurrection is us walking in newness of life. And as the very passage indicates, and there's a clue right in the passage, it is due to the first resurrection. And this is a place, by the way, If you have my notes, there's a major typo. It's one of those typos that make the sentence mean just the opposite. The typo is, it is due to the first resurrection that the second death has now power. It should read, has no power. So please correct that before you give this to your friends. the reason the second death has no power over us is at least primarily not because of a physical resurrection. The reason the second death has no power over us is because we've been born again. It would appear from this passage that this kingdom of priests, and that's what you are, you're a kingdom of priests, are to exercise the Great Commission. We are to go out and exercise the Great Commission without fear and without fear of death. Even the beheaded are living and reigning with Christ. And if we belong to Christ, and I do pray that that's true of everybody in this room and everybody who hears this message at any time, if we belong to Christ, we may still die, we most assuredly will, But let's not lose this. The second death has lost its sting. You know, when Paul says, you know, oh, death, where is thy sting? Let me tell you, as somebody who's been up and close and personal with a lot of death, I feel the sting of it. What do you mean there's no sting of death? It's the second death that's lost its sting. We still feel the pain of the first death. Even Jesus wept at the death of his friend. I think if you have an understanding of the Christian faith where you have no Sorrow for the death of loved ones. You got your misunderstanding. The Christian church is not to be a church of Mr. Spock's, you know. We are to feel, right? But the second death has lost its sting. And so in this message, let's not lose the beauty of the fact that if you have been involved in that first resurrection, that second death has no power over you. It's that second death, by the way, that people should be more concerned about. And Jesus put it this way in Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So friends, in summary, so far from this being a record of the events that happen after the second coming, this passage, I would argue, is a glorious call to participate in what God is currently doing in history. The liar and his lies will dominate no longer. He is a defeated enemy. His ability to deceive the nations has come to an end. 
But let me just take one more step here because you're kind of going, well, wait a minute, because it still seems like people are believing a lot of lies. I understand that. It's a process. But in order for the lies to be quelled, somebody has to start telling the truth. To reign with Christ means to herald the truth. The king has come. Bow the knee to the king. He's a loving, sacrificial king. He's not a king who just stayed distance. He entered the very history he created and he became one of us. And where we failed, he succeeded. And we are to proclaim that. We are to herald that. That is to be front and center that we have a Savior who's overcome death on our behalf who has, in fact, crushed the head of the enemy of God's people and has won a victory that you and I can't win. If we lose that, none of this means anything. We have to open our mouths and not cloister ourselves in some corner. You know, people go like, oh, well, the, the road is narrow and few who are those who go through the door. Well, that may have been true when Jesus said it, but that's not a prescription for the history of the church. That was true of that moment, but there's a call. And we've gone over this before, right? But the, the, the nations would come and bow before Christ. Rather than bow before who they're bowing before. And everybody thinks they're not bowing before anybody, and everybody's bowing before somebody. And I think H.B. Sweet pretty, pretty well when he said, the picture presented to the mind, he's talking about this chapter, is that of a state or society or a state of society in which Christian opinion is dominant and the positions of influence and authority are held by believers. And again, this should not be thought of as some kind of mega, 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 megalomaniacal, power-hungry. But he goes on and he says they're held by believers and not as in the age of St. John by pagans and persecutors. People are like, oh, we don't want a theocracy. We don't want God. We need to get, keep God separate and all that stuff. And you're going, okay, well, who then? Who's in charge? Pagans and persecutors. And the, his, the history's full of that. Christ should be on the throne. In our little conference here, during Q&A, somebody asked, if you had one word to give, you know, one quick message to give to the rulers of the world regarding, you know, the Christian faith, what would it be? You know, I mean, it's always hard, right? One little message and you have all the rulers. And they, they, the message I thought was pretty simple, and that is, kiss the sun. It's as simple as that. Kiss the sun. And when the Revelation was written to herald that truth, to do what he's talking about here, often meant death. That's why Paul says we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. See, uh, the, the, the routine response to an unbelieving world, by an unbelieving world, to the message of the truth is hostility. And people will say, well, if that's true, how can you have such an optimistic view of where this is all going to go? You know, I was listening to a guy who I really respect but vehemently disagree with on this issue. And he was adamantly saying to his church of 10,000 people, you need to understand that in history we lose. We lose. And he said it over and over and over again as if he was deriving great comfort from the idea of losing. As you know, And I'm, I'm not questioning his morality or anything, but he's in a church of 10,000 people wearing a nice suit behind a pulpit that probably costs thousands of dollars. I'm sure he has a nice car, he lives here in the Southern California area, and he's like, no, it's God's plan is for us to suffer, and he goes, we're not post-millennialists. I was shocked to hear him say that, where we just waltz right into the kingdom of God, and I'm like, okay, that's a false caricature of post-millennialism, of this idea that things are going to get better, because I don't believe that there's not going to be suffering. Here's what I believe. I think there will be suffering, and there will be martyrs, and there will be bloodshed, but the blood of the martyrs is what? It's the seed of the church. And so when martyrs are killed, 
Those who kill them are a house divided. It's their kingdom that will not stand. But the kingdom for which the martyr dies, this is the kingdom that endures to the end. So it's a long, hard process. I was one year old when Jim Elliott went to Ecuador to evangelize. He was 28 and almost immediately killed by a very violent Warani tribe. So he got there there with his buddies and they just killed him. He went there to minister, they just killed him. Shortly after that, his wife, very shortly after that, his wife, Elizabeth Elliott, courageously went to the same tribe. And they didn't kill her. The ministry continued. Today, there's an estimated 20% of the Horani people are Christians. Now, I don't know how excited that makes you. But from zero to 20. And I would, I would argue that that is just a small slice of what we're learning in Revelation chapter 20. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would recognize the glorious yet somewhat fearsome task of reigning with Christ. Help us, Father, to be wise unto that post. Help us to be selfless. Help us not to use whatever influence or power or authority you give to us in a self-serving manner, but only to serve you and to serve others, even as the Great Commission so clearly, or the, the greatest commandment so clearly states that we are to love you and love others. So help us to, Father, excel at that, both uh, as a church and as individuals. We pray these things in the precious name and in the blood of Christ. Amen.